0: And you are listening to River FM 92.9. This is Environmental As Anything. We've got Sean and Jeff.
1: Greetings and thank you for joining us.
0: And of course on the line we also have Professor Will Steffen. Now Will Steffen is a climate change expert and researcher in the Australian National University in Canberra. He was on the panel of experts supporting the multi-party climate change committee, has served as the science advisor to the Australian Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency and was chair of the Antarctic Science Advisory Committee. From 1998 to 2004, Professor Stephan served as Executive Director of the International Geosphere-Biosphere Program, an international network of scientists studying global environmental change. His research interests span a broad range within the fields of climate change and Earth system science, with an emphasis on sustainability, climate change and the Earth system. He's the author of numerous publications on climate science. And most recently, and here to, to talk to us today about his uh, uh Co authored paper, uh, Climate Tipping Points Too Risky to Bet Against, uh, from the journal Nature, in which they argue that the growing threat of abrupt and irreversible climate changes must compel political and economic action on emissions. Will. Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, thank you. No worries. And greetings from jeff and the yeah, ADU. Thanks for giving us the time.
0: Not a problem. So, uh, Will, you say. Uh, Politicians, I'm going to quote a bit from your paper. Um, Politicians, economists and even some natural scientists have tended to assume that tipping points in the Earth system, such as the loss of the Amazon rainforest or the West Antarctic ice sheet, are of low probability and little understood. Yet evidence is mounting that these events could be more likely than was thought, have high impacts and are interconnected across different bios. Biophysical systems potentially committing the world to long-term irreversible changes. Now, uh, given our, you know, fire crisis, our climate emergency, which we have playing out, is it uh, is it scientific? Is it the scientific method, or what is it about scientists that bring them to such understatement?s
2: Yeah. Look, I think uh, scientists, a lot of them are, are by, we're by nature a little bit careful. Yes. So we want to make sure that uh, we've got all the facts right. That there's a lot of evidence. Uh, for what we're saying and we test again and again, uh, challenging each other, taking the other point of view and so on. That's the way the scientific method works. and I think it's a good approach to get verifiable, very reliable scientific information. However, when it comes to connecting science to policy, that may not be the best approach Mm. uh, because a lot of policy people will, will look at that and say, well, scientists are still debating, they're still arguing about it, we really don't know, we shouldn't act. So the point we're making in this paper is there are some very, very uh, dangerous parts of the Earth system that could flip uh, out there, that could have really deleterious impacts on humanity. Uh, and we need to take a, a risk approach, a risk-averse approach, rather than waiting until the science is 100% sure.
1: So have these started, Will? Sorry? Have these tipping points be reached in any degree
2: some of them we think uh well well in the paper we say about nine of them are what we call active we can see that they are already moving or changing the question is um how close are we to tipping points it is possible that we we may have already crossed a tipping point on one or two of them uh those would be the arctic sea ice that's the sea ice that floats over the arctic ocean up over the north pole and the way that works is, is that uh, normally before uh, climate change, that uh, sea ice covered the North Pole during the summertime. And, of course, that's when they get sun 24 hours a day up there in the Northern Hemisphere. And that was reflecting the sunlight, which kept the North Pole cool. But as it melts, and it's melting because, of course, the temperature is going up, as it melts, it uncovers darker ocean water. And that means it absorbs more heat. That accelerates the warming. The ice retracts even further, so you see it's a self-reinforcing system. So at some point, it it becomes uh, unstoppable. It's going to melt. And uh, we're debating now. Some scientists think we may have already crossed that tipping point. If not, we'll certainly probably do so within the next decade.
1: Right. And Antarctica, not following suit as quickly?
2: Yeah, well, in West Antarctica, again, we're not sure. We may have crossed tipping points there, and that works a little bit differently. It doesn't melt from the surface like um, the Arctic sea ice or like the Greenland ice sheet. What's happening in, in West Antarctic is most of those uh, glaciers that are grounded on land have ice shelves out floating on the sea attached to the land, yep. and they, they retard them from going into the ocean. So it's all, sort of like a cork in a bottle. But what's happening is that those ice shelves are destabilizing. Some of them are breaking away. It's like pulling the cork out of the bottle, and then the glacier starts flowing, and we start losing ice uh, from the land, land-based ice. That process is, is going on. We can see that. And as the, the, the grounding line, we call it the grounding line retreats, which is where the glacier itself is grounded, and that's sometimes under the ocean just off the, the shoreline, as that retreats, Uh, that makes the glacier even more unstable, and, again, you you get this this self-reinforcing feedback. So there are some debates as to whether we have already crossed tipping points on some of the West Antarctic uh, glaciers.
0: Yes, and and in your paper, you talk about the difference between uh, different outcomes, like if at at 1.5 degrees C, it could take 10,000 years for these crises to unfold, whereas above 2 degrees, it might take less than 1,000 years, and and one can obviously extrapolate a similar sort of... uh, uh, level of if it's three degrees, where are we at? So um, this is uh, this we ha- so there are options for us to take action still, aren't there?
2: That's correct. So on, on these big ice sheets, um, we may uh, cross a tipping point fairly soon. But the rate at which uh, these ice sheets move after they've crossed a the tipping point is still somewhat uh, within our control, as you mentioned. Mm. So if we could keep the temperature rise between one point five and two, we would slow down uh, how fast those ice sheets actually move, that's really important because they're they're uh, critical for sea level rise. They're one of the two major factors that are uh, increasing uh, sea level. The other one, of course, is that the ocean water itself is, is heating up. Mm. Uh, so if we could meet the Paris targets, that would be, I think, a really important uh, achievement in terms of slowing the rate of sea level rise. If we go to a three or four degree world, that's going to vastly increase the rate at which those uh, polar ice sheets destabilise, and significantly increase then the rate rate at which sea level goes up.
0: Yeah, you talk in your paper about um, you know because of course all of these. Uh terrible effects that we're seeing are, are a bit out of everybody's uh, control or even understanding for most people. But the thing that people do understand is that the policy settings uh, need to be right to be able to get this right. And that you've mentioned the simple cost benefit uh, climate economy models, uh, you know, a- aligning with the IPCC report. So in other words, a warming must be limited to 1.5 degrees requiring an emergency response. So it's, it's about economics and policy, isn't it, that we're where we need to take action.
2: Uh, absolutely. And that comment was actually aimed at some uh, very simplistic cost-benefit analyses, which do not take into account nonlinearities or tipping points in the Earth's system. One of them, I think, uh, suggested that the optimum temperature might be 3 degrees. Well, that would be disastrous, probably, because it would certainly tip several of these tipping points uh, would likely take the Earth system out of our control and it would go to a much hotter temperature than three degrees. So what we're saying is this this approach of cost benefit analysis is basically useless uh, in terms of being uh, a significant or, or, a, or a reliable uh, policy tool. When you're thinking about these strong nonlinearities, uh, these tipping points, the fact that if we get a tipping cascade and we talk about the fact that these are linked, and could lead to a cascade of tipping points and that could take us to a much harder world even if our own emissions uh, would on their own stop at about 2 or 2.5. We could end up at 5 or 6 instead
0: Yeah, and that's I, I we were just saying before uh, Jeff and I were talking about this and this, I, I was saying before that non-linearity that the the uh, the complexity systems of systems uh, Analysis it, it seems to me is is one of the big problems that people have when they come to uh, Understanding these things certain people have a very linear view of how the world works don't they?
2: Yeah, and I think that's fairly common because uh, we've developed our societies, our economies, and so on uh, in the geological uh, epoch that the geologists call the Holocene. And although there's, there's natural variability, which we're well aware of here in Australia, it's within limits. And, and so um, we're getting used to the fact that a lot of the world we experience is somewhat linear uh, in terms of we put pressure on a system and it responds in a fairly predictable way. What we're saying now is we are already in, entering... Um, a climatic state which is becoming increasingly non-linear more difficult to predict surprising things happen you get abrupt shifts uh, a good example of this i think of the uh, the bushfires that we are experiencing now cr- across the east part of the country yep. um, those are, are unprecedented in their in their ferocity mm. they are they they're, they're occurring early in the season they're very widespread uh, so in a way that would be a, uh, an example i think of a local tipping point where we've crossed uh, the uh, threshold of of, uh, of fire danger, fire danger weather. Yep. Uh, and that's what the experts, the firees are telling us that they haven't seen this sort of thing before too. So again, we're entering a world that's much more chaotic, uh, much more nonlinear, much more dangerous, and much more difficult to predict.
1: Yeah. So we will just hiking back um, to your terms there, nonlinear, um, your mention of cascading. So this is sort of a synergy effect where one tipping point feeds into the next tipping point, which accelerates each other
2: yeah that's right and and, and this um this cascading effect can operate in a couple of ways the obvious one of course is increasing the the temperature which actually then destabilizes another tipping point yes examples of that would be the permafrost which is the frozen peat soil up in siberia as that starts thawing and emitting both carbon dioxide and methane that heats up the planet Uh, And, of course, that then increases ice loss. So there's a a direct effect there. But there's an even more subtle one, which is fascinating, and that's that as ice melts in the northern hemisphere, in other words, the Arctic sea ice, but particularly Greenland, as Greenland melts, it is um, flowing fresh water onto the North Atlantic Ocean. And that sits on the surface because it's less dense than salt water. That has the effect of slowing down the north-south circulation. Uh, along the Atlantic, in the Atlantic Ocean. The ultimate effect of that is actually trapping more warm water underneath the Antarctic ice shelves, which then increases their melting and destabilization. So there's a link via the circulation in the Atlantic between what happens to Northern Hemisphere ice and what happens in Antarctica.
1: So that's a pole-to-pole link.
2: That's a pole-to-pole link, and it operates via the ocean circulation in the Atlantic.
1: Yes, yep, interesting. Um, I was just thinking, too, with the fires sort of seeming to have passed some sort of tipping point, not only here, we've got the boreal forests and right across the world, um, that must be putting an immense amount of carbon dioxide and and sort up into the air as well.
2: Yeah, the, the statistics I've seen, for example, is in the Canadian forests, um, they've gone from being a net sink of carbon, uptake of carbon, uh, to being carbon neutral or even sources of carbon. That's happened over about a 30-year period, starting in the, in the 1970s, 80s. Uh, and it was a combination of fires but also insect attacks. Uh, yes. Because as, those, uh, f- as it warms up there in those far northern forests, uh, insect uh, populations boom. Uh, and things like uh, uh, spruce bark beetles and budworms and so on, they attack the trees, make them more fire-prone and so on. So we see these complex ecosystem tipping points starting to occur too.
1: So we've got a major problem because the economic modelists or modelling crew across the world um, like to work on cost-benefit analysis and they love to work on the perpetual growth idea. Um, So really... How on earth do we get politicians to pay attention and take this seriously?
2: Well, I think I think we're at a point now where we need to use more direct action than we have in the past. A good example of that are the students yes. uh, who are out on the streets uh, striking for climate uh, climate action and so on. And we need more people in, in civil society just to take all sorts of actions, uh, be it helping blockade parliaments, being writing letters, uh, it could be supporting the students and so on. Uh, but clearly, our, our, our economic slash political system is absolutely failing us uh, up till now we've had at least two decades of, of increasingly good science telling us what's happening now we're seeing that these predictions we made two decades ago they're, they're coming to, to life now right in front of us in fact in many cases we scientists may have underestimated yes. uh, how severe and how fast things are happening uh, so there, there really is now a climate emergency all the evidence is there uh, but still we see very little effective action uh, here in Australia and, and, and in many other countries around the world, there's
0: just not much action. So, no, prob- go on, go on, Sean. sorry, I was going to say uh, yes. No, just just on breaking news right now, it's raining outside the studio here, and that's uh, that's so uh, so uh, uns- unprecedented around here that it's worthy of interrupting this uh, interview just to give that note that news. Um but I also wanted to say the uh, world's remaining emissions budget for 50, uh, for a 50 50 chance of staying within the 1.5 degrees C of warming is only about 500 gigatons of CO2 um and you know the raining uh, the, the remaining budget could be erased already you say could you give us a bit more on that
2: Yeah well when you look at these budgets um, there're a couple of things you have to take into account one is These budgets in general assume that you're going to reduce the concentration of the other greenhouse gases as fast as you do of CO2. So that's methane, nitrous oxide, um, and a few others. If you don't, that means you've got to reduce CO2 even further. Yes. Also, these budgets do not take into account the feedbacks from the natural world. Uh, For example, permafrost. The IPCC does estimate that but it's an offline number that you must subtract hmm. from the budget if you want to take into account of that feedback we've done our own estimates and we published them last year of some of these other feedbacks like the boreal force in canada and siberia like the amazon and so on uh... and they at least double the 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 amount of, the, the amount of feedback carbon you're going to get uh, over and above the the permafrost so when you take those into account that shrinks the budget very very rapidly um, also the budgets are based on an assumed uh, value for climate sensitivity how sensitive the climate is for a given amount of carbon put into the atmosphere uh that number now is being debated in the next uh, IPC, ipcc assessment it may become a larger number all of those would shrink the budget quite significantly mm. so so the point is for, for 1.5 even a 50/50 chance the budget is shrinking fast it'll probably disappear within a decade if you go to a two thirds chance of meeting uh, the one point five that budget's virtually gone already
0: yeah right so we 're we're already down to the wire of the 50 fifty chance, as you say, and and looking down the barrel of uh, of of, of, of over, overshooting that if we don 't act in the most most uh, urgent manner imaginable that 's correct,
2: and that's why that 's another good reason why the students who are saying we have a climate emergency they 're absolutely correct.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a global cascade and, and you say in our view the clearest emergency would be if we were approaching a global cascade of tipping points that uh, lead to a new, less habitable, hothouse climate state. You know, these cascading effects like a switch from rainforest to savanna or arctic sea ice loss. Uh, so what's, what is what is the situation for the possibility of that uh, that the cascade of tipping points now?
2: Well, that's sort of the $64 question and that's where we do need to do some more research. Yeah. Um, my best guess now um, looking at the literature is i think it would be unlikely to uh... would be unlikely to initiate such a cascade if we could keep uh... temperature rise to one point five or below we couldn't completely rule it out um, but i think it would probably be less than less than fifty fifty maybe quite a bit less than fifty yep. fifty if we go to three degrees i think we're almost certain i think that the cascade will have definitely taken off at 3 or well before 3. So in between 1.5 and 3 is is really the question. Where, where does that initiation of the Cascade lie? Uh, we don't know, but um, as we say in the paper, it's really stupid to err on the side of danger.
0: Well, you what? want to
2: err on the side of safety, which means... Keep temperature as close to 1.5 as you can, temperature rise.
0: Absolutely. I mean, as you say, atmospheric CO2 is already at levels last seen around 4 million years ago uh, in the Pliocene, uh, rapidly heading towards levels last seen 50 million years in the Eocene, when temperatures were 14 degrees higher. That was an alarming figure that I read.
2: Yeah, certainly you don't want to go there. That's not a, a, a climate that's good for large mammals like Homo sapiens. What
0: kind of world was, were we hot. looking at at 14 degrees higher? Can you, can you outline that, sketch that out no, for our listeners? I,
2: look, I, that, it's, it's even hard for a scientist to imagine that. Yeah. Uh, certainly um, 40 million years ago, there was no ice, mm. uh, surface ice on the planet. Mm. Uh, so that means that all of Antarctica is gone. That means all of Greenland is gone and so on. Uh, obviously, it's, it takes a while for that to... Um, to disappear, but if you're going up above five, six degrees toward ten degrees, that's going to happen reasonably fast under those conditions mm. in, in geological terms. Mm. Um, the, the the biomes around the planet would be totally different in terms of where where the biosphere, uh, where the big biomes like the forests, um, the grasslands, the savannas, where they are. Um, I suspect that, that at that temperature, fires are going to be very common. Uh, which means that you're not going to have many standing cores that are there for long periods of time. Sea level would be about 60 to 65 metres higher than today. Um, probably storminess would be much worse than we have today. Uh, but it's really hard. It's even hard for us to imagine what a 14-degree warmer world might actually look like.
0: Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> I find that quite, quite alarming just to, to reading through your article, suddenly confronted with that idea. But, um, you know, so you also say if damaging tipping cascades can occur and a global tipping point cannot be ruled out, then this is an existential threat to civilization. No amount of economic cost-benefit analysis is going to help us. We need to change our approach to the climate problem. And uh, you're saying, act now, in, uh, in our view, the evidence from Tipping Points alone suggests that we're in a state of planetary emergency. Both the risk and urgency of the situation are acute. So you then go on to define the emergency. Can you talk us through that a little bit?
2: Yeah, so, so what we're doing is we're looking at two things. One is we're looking at the nature of the risk itself. So that's um, the combination of the probability of something happening, like loss of the Amazon forest, for example, and the damages that would occur uh if that happened so and that that's a fairly common way for example that insurance companies would look at they would look at uh the chance of something really bad happening and then if it did happen uh, what are the damages as uh, that a combination of those two factors that would uh, allow them to make an assessment of risk mm. but the the other part of the equation that we look at is is um, how much longer do we have to intervene on some of these in other words at what point do these things tip and we can no longer intervene? And then we look compared to that, what is the reaction time uh that we actually have left ourselves? So that means at what time can we actually get greenhouse gas emissions to net zero? Mm. So that would be our reaction time. And the earliest that most people think would be around twenty fifty. So that means practically our reaction time is about thirty years. Right. So when we look at tipping, some of these tipping points, like the Arctic sea ice, like coral reefs and so on, the time we have left to intervene to save them is much less than 30 years. Yeah. That's true for coral reefs. It's true for the Arctic sea ice. Therefore, we've probably lost control over them, and they're going to tip no matter what we do. Mm. So the other interesting ones, though, are Greenland, which may have an a intervention time left of 25 to 30, 35 years, so about the time we've got left. Mm. Um, Amazon, maybe we don't have that much time. That could be 15 or 20 years. So um, we've got to make assessments of what these intervention times are for these various tipping elements. But, of course, the problem is if there are enough of them with with, uh, intervention times less than 30 years, uh, we may have already lost control.
0: Yeah. So no time to waste. I've got to say, uh, you know, 30 years ago I was banging on doors for Greenpeace telling people that uh, these tipping points were a possibility. Uh, you know, most people were would, would get, giving me blank stares back. Uh, and, and yet uh, yeah Greenpeace was saying this long before the IPCC uh, adopted these ideas. It seems that the, uh, uh, the civil society uh, and, and uh, are, are freer to, to make uh, extrapolate from these figures than uh, you know the scientists are in general.
2: Yeah no, but it's interesting you say that that the idea of tipping points has been around for a while uh, but I think that uh, we've been I think partly, um, focused much on what the climate model projections are for a given amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And the, the reason that's a problem is that a lot of these so-called non-linearities or discontinuities or tipping points, uh, all these sort of tech, techie terms, those processes aren't in the climate models. So they tend to get uh, pushed aside when we look at what the projections are for temperature rise via given emissions that's changing now because a lot of these tipping points now are being are, are, can be simulated in yeah. climate models and when we do that interestingly um at the last assessment report ar5 we found that between 1.5 and 2 there was a cluster of uh, tipping elements that were uh, destabilized in the climate model. so that's telling us that just as we're starting to see observations of this um, that we're entering uh, we're entering rather dangerous territory.
1: Yep. Well. So to what degree are you and other scientists still being conservative, do you think?
2: I think that's starting to change. Uh, I think certainly in the assessment reports, just the way they're configured in terms of uh, getting a consensus, that's going to tend to skew you toward the more conservative side of things. Okay. The natural scientific reticence of, of not wanting to stick your head out, that, that- also, I think pushes you toward the conservative side of things. Uh, but there are a growing number of scientists saying, look, we need to change our framework on this. We need to talk more about the high-end risks, the probabilities that these things might happen, uh, and, and the uh, really sometimes very large damages that could occur if they do happen. So I think there's a growing number of scientists who are saying we need to reframe how science intersects with the policy policy community and with the uh, with the public in general.
1: What um do you think is the prospect of politicians just putting this off to the very last minute and assuming that technology and geoengineering can fix all at the 11th hour?
2: Well, that's always a danger, of course, that, that we'll somehow um, innovate our way out of this, uh, when in fact uh, they, this is a really uh, nasty problem. The Earth is the most complex system we've ever tried to uh, to deal with and understand. And a lot of the interventions, at least today, that are proposed are very simplistic and are likely to lead to side effects that are difficult to predict and could be as bad as the the cure. So the cure could be as bad as the disease in those cases. I think the other thing, of course, is that the major... Uh, sector in our economy that drives this, of course, is the fossil fuel sector. Uh, And they, uh, in some areas of the world, including this country, exert an inordinate amount of influence over the political system. Mm. Uh, So that makes it even more difficult for politicians to do the right thing uh, in terms of getting climate change under control.
1: Well, I see over 80% of the people really want more action. Um, I guess all we can do is um, plead to everyone to do things like write letters and be active. Hmm.
2: Absolutely, it's support the students and get out on the streets yourself.
1: That's Fantastic. it. Yep. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Will, for uh, for giving us that uh, rundown on your on your findings. It's uh, it's uh, both uh, scary and inspiring uh, to know that we, now is the time.
2: Okay. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking Be- with
0: you. Before you go, I just wanted to ask you one last question, with uh, sure. which I ask of all of our interview subjects whenever I can remember: Mad Max or Star Trek? Which one would you back?
2: Oh dear. Uh, I'm not a movie buff, so it's hard for me to say that with any authority. Um, gee, as a vision I, I of the future, say, look, as, I, a,
0: I, vi- as I, a vision of the future, which one would you back?
2: I would say, unfortunately, right now, probably Mad Max.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yep.
2: Thank All right. you again.
0: Well, thanks so much, Will. We'll do our best to make sure we get to the Star Trek, anyway, hey?
2: <laughs> okay. Thank <laughs> you, thanks Sean. again. Thanks, bye. Will. Okay. Bye, bye.
0: And of course, that was uh, Will Steffen from uh, the Climate Council speaking on the his paper uh, he's co-written in climate in Nature, in the journal Nature, on climate tipping points too risky to bet against. We've got a link on, on our Facebook page to that uh, um, article with all the details in it. That was fascinating, wasn't it, Jeff?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Yeah,
1: frightening too
0: slightly terrifying well we will go to a track and a couple of uh, promos and be right back are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips would you like to know what simple effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today Tune in to Environmental as Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand